of Matthew 5, and we are beginning a series in a wonderful study, I hope, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, been something I've studied for a long time, but um, we have not studied through that here. So on the back of your sermon outline, you'll find uh, some passages printed that you can refer to if you didn't bring your Bible with you, starting in Matthew 4, 23 through 25, to set the context. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... And my friends, what follows after that is what I, I know we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount three chapters of the most famous teachings of Jesus. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 7. Jaw-dropping, stunning instruction from the Master. And it finishes, it finishes at the end of chapter 7. You see that, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So far, the reading of God's word for us today. If you can remember back to elementary school, to middle school or junior high or high school, if you can remember back, did you have a teacher that was especially gifted? A teacher that you enjoyed, maybe more than any other teacher that you had. It, it could have been high school or elementary school, but a teacher that when the, he or she was in front of the classroom, you were engaged. And they, they, they captured your attention. Their teaching was was engaging. You were, you were excited to be in school and you took what they said seriously. Do you have a teacher, ever have a teacher like that? I did. Do you have somebody in mind? I remember when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher named Mr. Gilmore and he was, uh, he was magnetic. He drew the children into the study of science and mathematics and literature and poetry and, and, uh, and, we just had the best time. It was fifth grade was a great year for us. And, and what he taught us was not just stuff to learn, but he worked to teach us all to love to learn. 
He wanted us to have life lessons. I remember he taught us good manners. He made us say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. In the class, I still remember that's when I, that's uh, how my parents taught me that, but I took it seriously when Mr. Gilmore said it. And there was life change in his class. Do you have someone like that that you remember? I bet you do. Pastors. Pastors are teachers, you know. Pastors are teachers, and maybe in, over the course of your own Christian life, you remember a, a particular pastor who's, who just touched your life and engaged you in such a way that you were directed to the Lord, and, and as you grew in the Lord, you were so thankful for his ministry in your life. Well, whether you have one of those teachers or one of those pastors, I want you to know that given our text today, they are only a hint, a, sh- a, sh- a shadow of the greatest teacher who ever walked this planet. The greatest pastor who ever was on earth. And who am I speaking of? Of course you know. It's Jesus. Jesus. Extraordinary. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known of all his teachings where he has been announcing repent. And and it was very clear in in chapter 4, that after he was baptized and after he was tempted in the wilderness, now he begins to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's going to teach us what it looks like for us to repent. To repent, that word to repent, it it essentially means to change your mind, to change your direction. You're going in this direction and metanoia, repentance, is to turn and to go in this direction. That's change of heart, change of mind. Leaving the old way, putting on the new. And so Jesus explains to us, I want to change your life by my teaching. Now it's interesting, when it says he went up to the mountainside and he sat down, it's not just telling you that he was tired. What Jesus was doing was he was assuming the posture of a rabbi. That's what Matthew is telling us. He was assuming the posture of a teacher right there because it follows. And then his followers came and they listened to him and he taught them. Okay? So when you come to church, when you go to your home fellowship group, when you are in Sunday school, when you're in youth group, you come for a variety of reasons. I know that you come because... Well, because you love to worship God and you love to praise His name and you want to be touched by God. You want Him to minister to your soul. But do you also come to learn? So that you can repent. That is, you can change in those areas where He wants you and me to change. He sat down. That's the posture of the teacher in in the ancient Near East of that time. We all want a teacher who will tell you, this is how God thinks, and that's how you should think. And this is how God wants you to live, and so, this is what you want to conform your life to. We all want a, a teacher like that, don't we? Teaching teaching. 
For Jesus Christ, teaching is not about information. For Jesus Christ, teaching is about transformation. That's why the whole, the whole repentance theme, it's about the change that must come. So Jesus emphasizes this of his true followers. And if you go, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, well, um, the commentators that, that I enjoy, one in particular named John Stott, I just want to tell you already, uh, though, I, though I work through the text and I uh, want to study what the text says, I am so blessed by other folks who have really pondered them. John Stott has written the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite teachers and writers, he's written on the Sermon on the Mount, and they both talk about a spiritual classic. John Stott, I'm sorry, says of this book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by David Martin Lloyd-Jones, written in 1960, that this is the classic work on the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you would be interested in studying along and, and picking up one of these. And, and uh, maybe we should get a couple copies down in our bookstore of these excellent works. Already they've been such a, an encouragement to me in my own study. But John Stott says, if you want to understand the impact that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, you go to chapter 6, verse 8, where Jesus says, Do not be like them. That's what Pastor Stott says. Jesus is telling us that we are to be different as followers, his followers, his disciples in his kingdom. He came preaching the kingdom. You become citizens of his kingdom. And, and in your bulletin this morning, uh, did you see that, that reflection where uh, Brother John Stott, he says, he says, and I put this for you to take home, no comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different from anybody else. And I think he's right. Would that be said of us? That for us, it's just status quo with the culture. No, no. Jesus saying, my disciples are different. Different from whom? Changed from what? And as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, the, all the commentators make clear that what you do is you are contrasted with two groups of people, the pagans and the churchgoers. He says, my disciples are not like the pagans. Who are the pagans? What are they like? And, and we'll, we'll get to this, but the pagans, they're the people who really like their friends. They do good to their friends. Who wouldn't? Jesus says, my followers are not stuck on just being good to their friends, but you, I tell you, love your enemies. He says, the pagans, they pray. Yeah, but how do they pray? They babble, babble, babble. Meaningless words. But you do not be like them. I'm going to teach you how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm going to teach you to engage your heavenly Father as a child who loves you. But then he also contrasts his disciples, the ones who are changing, the ones who are repenting, who are citizens of his kingdom. He also contrasts them with the religious folk. And this might hit a little closer to home for you and me. 
He says, because when you enter into a relationship with me, with your Father in heaven, it changes your relationships with other people. And so he's going to say, don't judge your brother any longer, but instead serve him. And he's going to say, uh, he's going to say, watch out. Don't be like the hypocrites. And chapter 6 comes at us. Do not be like the hypocrites. Yeah, they'll show up. But their hearts are far from me. I want you to have purity of heart and sincerity of heart as you engage God in your own life. You see what's going on? Jesus' instruction is not just about information. It's about transformation. So, when Jesus sat down, that's really point number one, he is establishing himself as our teacher. And if you're here today, and if you're here on Thursday night, you're saying, Jesus Christ, you are our teacher. You think that's simple, but it's not so simple. It's very profound because there are so many voices out there that are telling you how to live and what to think. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Because he is our teacher. Now, point number two. Jesus amazes us with his teaching. And I underline the word amazed because if you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what do we find out? When he is done, we take a peek at that. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were gripped by his teaching. What did he say? What was so important? What was so gripping? Now, now some of you have looked at your sermon outline and you're gulping, saying, oh, no, all those eight, eight little things there. No, I'm not going to preach through all those eight points there. What I've done is I've given you an outline that you can take home. And I would ask every one of us to read through the Sermon on the Mount this week. Start to get familiar with it. Let it, read it slowly. And John Stott, I just gave you his breakout in eight sections of what the Sermon on the Mount is, is uh, how it's laid out. So maybe you'll find this helpful. But, but friends, when Jesus gets going, I tell you, people were shaking their heads. People's jaws were dropping. As he begins, he talks about the, the Beatitudes. That's We're going to spend eight weeks on the Beatitudes starting next week. And he's saying, blessed is the man. Remember what blessed means? I told you. It's like God saying, congratulations to you. Okay. To you. Blessed, eight beatitudes, blessing. What will that look like, your character that he congratulates in you? And then he says, and and you're going to have influence. And there's not a man or a woman seated in this room who does not want to have significance in their life. You, You read every book about middle age, every book about middle age that's current in our day. And here's what they say. You know, you, you spend the first part of your life climbing the ladder and, and out on the rat race. And then you suddenly realize what really matters is to have some significance in your life. 
And Jesus says, my disciples have significance. They are light in a dark world. They are salt in a decaying world. And then, oh my, and Jesus gets radical. And and he starts talking about the law. And he says, you think you keep the law? Let's talk about adultery. Let's talk about murder. Let's talk about making vows and promises. Let's talk about divorce. Let's talk about the the things of life. And Jesus says to his disciples, I know you. I know how prone to anger you are and to eager to punish another. And I'm going to talk with you about that. And I know how imperious you are in your sexuality and your drives. And I'm going to warn you and challenge you about that. And I know. And, and he just goes on to expose us. He plows up the ground of our hearts. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And then chapter 6. The, the, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. The Pharisees. What are they? They're just mechanical. Going through the motions. They are just formal, showing up for the events. But you, you, I want you to have a sincere heart. This is news to the people. And he says, Jesus says, I know how important money is to you. I know because money is important. But I want to tell you something. You can't serve both God and money. And I know how important food is to you. I know how important drink is to you. I know how important clothes are to you. They're important, he says. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then, why then all those other things will fall in place. Are you ready to hear that? To study that? Explore that with Jesus? In your relationships, again, they are changed. And then, and then finally... It's really all driving. It's all driving to a Christian's commitment to Jesus as Lord as he talks about the man who builds his house on the sand versus the man who builds his house on the rock. What will it be? Lordship. It's all driving to lordship. You know, there is a myth in evangelical Christianity. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. It goes, well, you come to Jesus. You have a come to Jesus moment to find him as Savior And someday, if you're interested, you'll come around to having him as Lord. I think a lot of people have bought into that myth. But Jesus doesn't teach that. He he doesn't teach that. In fact, he says on the judgment day, the day of eternity, and he locates himself as the judge. He says, your eternal destiny hinges on whether or not I knew you. And I must confess to you, one of the scariest verses in the Bible, unless we understand it in the context of the gospel. Oh, somebody says, what a burden. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary, he says, he says, some people think that the Sermon on the Mount is calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt in the fewest chapters. Well, Ferguson goes on to say, he says, you can't read the Sermon on the Mount without feeling guilty to some extent. 
None of us can, he says. But get aboard with this. In his amazing teaching, Jesus is not calculating to make you guilty. What Jesus is doing is he's going to put in front of you a vision for living in his kingdom, a lifestyle, a new life. He has it right in front of you, in your eyes, and we're going to work on building that together. It's a, it's a beautiful vision of a changed life and a new life. The crowds were astounded at what he taught. Why? Because it says he was not like their teachers of the law. And this is point number three. Point number three, the teachers of the law in his day were corrupt. You read the Gospels, they were corrupt. Teachers of the law in his day were hypocrites. They were formalistic, but there was no heart. And all they heard were the opinions of men. For generations, it's been like this. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He's out preaching and the crowds come and it's different and black and white has become technicolor. Their jaws drop because he teaches with authority. This is somebody somebody we will listen to. Is this someone you will listen to? That's, That's really the question today. Is this someone, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, is this someone you will listen to? And the people woke up. Here's what happens. Jesus has this commanding presence. He speaks, and people listen, and yet he's approachable. I love this about Jesus. He's commanding in his presence, but he's very approachable. And regular sinners are comfortable with him. You see that that Jesus was persuasive, but he leads them with short stories and pithy uh, questions, and he leads them to actually draw their own conclusions. What a masterful teacher we will see him to be with authority. He commands their presence. He he commands their attention. And his message is sophisticated. It is complex. And yet at the same time, Jesus Christ is crystal clear. They are amazed. Nobody misunderstands what Jesus is saying. That's what I want our ministry here at the North Shore Community Church to be like. Commanding. It grips your attention, but approachable. I'm welcome here. Persuasive, and yet you are a learner. You are coming to your own conclusions in conformity to the teachings of Jesus so that you really own it. And it's not just the preacher says, what do you believe? You know, people say, what do you believe? Don't say, go ask my preacher. We don't want to be those kind of Christians. What do you believe? Well, let me tell you what Jesus has taught me. That's the right answer. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority. Think with me for just a moment. How do you like authority? How do you respond to someone in authority over you? Some people say, well, if somebody exercises authority over me, well, they're sort of like my boss. They're outside of me. And they tell me what to do, and I have to conform to what they tell me to do. This weekend, we wrote a check to Uncle Sam in accordance with the laws of uh, our nation. We paid our taxes. 
You might like the tax code. You might not like the tax code. But, well, Congress is in authority, and we had to pay our taxes. So we did it. We submit to authority. Somebody else is here, and somebody else says, well, you know, I never like submitting to authority. I don't like to submit to it and, because I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel. And I have always learned that I shall be the captain of my own fate and the master of my own soul. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. And it's a really fun way to live. At least for a while. Not permanently. You, everyone I know like that ends up getting in big trouble. But are those the only two ways to think about authority? They're a boss to me, outside of me, even in religion. They're they're the boss of me. Or I'm living for myself. Or is there a third way to respond to the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ? You know, we've told you many times that to live as a Christian, to live as a Christian is to be true to yourself, to be true to who God created you to be. That sin is insanity. I've said that many times. Sin is insanity. Sanity is walking in obedience and walking in fellowship faithfully to your master, Jesus Christ. And that's the good way to respond to his authority. Is that what you want? Well, we're coming to communion now. And communion is the opportunity for the members of the church of Jesus Christ to re align themselves to the one who is in authority over them. Communion is the time for you to get an adjustment. Some of you go to the chiropractor and he says you need an adjustment, right? You need an adjustment. Communion is a time for adjustment. Maybe you haven't been amazed at his teaching. You ponder now as we come to the Lord's table, you ponder some of the things that Jesus is saying that makes your jaw drop. And you worship him. Follow him. We're going to have a great season of blessing together as we study through the Sermon on the Mount together, brothers and sisters. Let's prepare our hearts now at communion this week and let's come back ready and eager to be amazed at his teaching. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us the same experience that you gave to those disciples described in Matthew chapter 7. We would be amazed at your teaching. Lord, uh, this sermon, this sermon has really been like an hors d'oeuvre. It has been like the caterer just letting us taste a little sample of what he's going to bring to the banquet. We pray as we come to communion now, Lord, you would establish yourself as our teacher. That we would be eager to learn more and more how to repent of those ways that we are either like the world or the nominal hypocritical church. That we may have the life that is truly life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wanted to finish my sermon with you holding the bread in your hand because the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that change is impossible outside of a relationship with the one who is teaching. 
Sinclair Ferguson, he says, you could actually hear a sermon from a preacher you don't know, and it could help you. Maybe people are listening online, and a sermon might help them. But not with this sermon. Not with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus claims lordship over his hearers in the Sermon on the Mount. He claims relationship with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And true change will only come through the one who actually lived it himself, the bread of life, the bread of heaven. Very important. Are you holding the bread? No change will happen. No, not the transforming change will happen apart from that personal relationship with him. So he said, feed on me. Take the bread now and feed on Christ in your hearts by faith. Yes, Lord, we need you. And we want you. And we love you. And we invite you to give us those adjustments and to bring that repentance and the changes in us that you require and that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.